Did you mean Arrival? Is. Sorry, you said yes, Annihilation. I did. I did. Okay. Uh, both fucking A movies. You watch Annihilate. <laughs> <laughs> I've got our intro, so that's good. Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast where we talk about 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is volume 2, 2010 to 2019. Episode 43 overall, we are doing Annihilation. Who's we? I'm Matt, and I'm joined by Ben. Ben, how is it going? As you, you know, we love to date the podcast. You're about to enter second lockdown in London. Uh, it's tier 2. Tier 2, tier two. Isn't, it isn't quite second lockdown. Okay. It just means that I will not leave the house Slightly more than I'm already not leaving the house. That's fair. I've enforced my own personal lockdown from the start, where no matter what they said we could do, I was kind of like, ah, I don't think we should, though, because <laughs> nothing's I, I actually have, happened. I have, like, moments where I have, like, a stretch of, like, two or three days where I, like, socially distance see someone, and then I go, like, right, I've done my socializing, I am now quarantining myself <laughs> for, for a month, and I will return to yeah. seeing maybe one person and then quarantine me again in a month's time. Well, there you go. We're responsible people. Speaking of quarantines, kind of. Uh, yeah, we're here to talk about the sequel to Mortal Kombat, the moot. Sorry, wrong Annihilation. That joke doesn't play if you don't know that the second Mortal Kombat is called Mortal Kombat Annihilation. I, uh, we, we have to assume the intelligence of our, of our <laughs> listeners, Matt. Okay, intellectuals among us have seen Mortal Kombat Annihilation. A total piece of shit. But this... Annihilation by Alex Garland is not a piece of shit. Chosen by me because I think it's been firmly established. I have a great big hard-on for the work of one Mr. Alex Garland. And my only other options this decade were Dread, which got a serious look in. <laughs> Ex Machina, which I think I'm a bit lower on than a lot of people. And Devs, which is a film in the same way that Twin Peaks is a film. But unfortunately it came out in 2020, so disqualified. Uh, otherwise it would be straight on here. Yeah, um, I do need to watch it. Knowing how this went, and then also some of my feelings about it, I can kind of see why he pivoted to TV, and I will be interested to see if he remains pivoted to TV. But I, I think he's the kind of person who who can come back and do a movie. I feel it's a choice, not like he's been banished to TV land. But this is 115 minutes long. I love things that are under two hours. However, when it's something I actually like, I'm like, maybe this should have been a miniseries. <laughs> because the central, like, what's going on in the Shimmer doesn't need to be that big a mystery. But I think they assembled a really fucking interesting cast who... Run through quite quickly yeah, to, get, to get to Act 3. Yeah, and I'm kind of like, can I have an episode on each one of them where we do their flashbacks? And, like, you know, flashbacks are a kind of tired trope, but when they work, they work. And I think this is a movie where they work because, you know, the whole thing starts in media res. Kind of, you know, we start at the end, and the whole movie's a flashback, so we know at the start everyone except her dies. That builds in... A degree, you know, if you're already flashing back, you might as well flash back further. But some part of me wishes this were like a high production mini series with, you know, four episodes, five episodes, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I picked it because I love Garland. I feel it's also turned out to be a nice companion piece to Arrival, which I hadn't seen when I put Annihilation forward. I think they both do different things well and could both have learned from each other at some of the stuff they didn't do as well. That's fair. I think I think there is a very interesting dynamic here where like Arrival is more of a movie on my emotional wavelength mm -hmm. and Annihilation isn't that. 
Yeah. Which isn't to say that I don't really like Annihilation. It's it's a movie that I admire more than adore, but it isn't to say that like whenever I watch it, I'm just like, oh god, this looks so good and it feels so good watching it. It's mm-hmm. just that emotional thing just doesn't grab me. But I think and that's the garland of it all. I think a lot of his stuff is quite cold emotionally. See, but I I, I got the gut punch from Ex Machina that I didn't quite get sure. from this and, that, and that's just to say like i i slightly prefer ex machina to annihilation it isn't okay. to say that like either one is is a, a worse movie than the other it's just for whatever yeah. reason like the the final sequence of ex machina of like her getting her own back and stuff like that deeply upsets and... me when she <laughs> she locks him in there permanently <laughs> i get it it just upsets me but I think in general he has a kind of fixation on oh silly humans, silly arrogant humans, not considering the greater universe and every one of his characters is in some way like a wanky self-destructive person kind of thing. Go watch devs, <laughs> is what I'll say. So we won't be talking about the opening weekend for this or the or really the box office. I mean technically it made forty three million dollars, but it didn't come out it, it with a big theatrical rollout because Netflix ended up buying it internationally because there was a big blow up between Garland and Skydance who who financed the movie who basically were like look this did not test well it's too smart (laughs) I love when things get called too smart you need to make people care more emotionally about Natalie Portman's character and you need to change the ending and Garland and Scott Rudin dug their heels in and were like no and thus (laughs) With what's going on at Paramount around this time, and whatever's going on with this argument, Netflix step in and end up distributing it in every country except America, Canada, and China. Yeah, and I don't even think is... it was in theaters very long there either, because it ended up on Hulu, ironically. Yeah, because this is that era where Netflix are like building up their film portfolio, and it's interesting to look at it from 2020 eyes, where it feels mm. like the Netflix film side is is the more important side yes. than the TV side at this point. Like, yeah, oh, they've pivoted hard from binge watch to, hey, lockdown movies. Yeah, they've gone from, you get 10 hours worth of content every single week, to you get a two-hour movie, and if you watch this movie enough, we'll make you a sequel. Terminology, which I'm sure is cheaper and also less. Yeah. Like, they don't, they aren't obligated to renew something now, and, and yeah. make a second season that's going to have diminishing returns. Like, if the movie was a hit, then they get to make a sequel. And they get to um, claim the yellow Chris Hemsworth war movie may, is, like, the most watched thing in the history of mankind, which it clearly is not, but, you know. It's so fascinating <laughs> when you mention Skydance as well. Yeah. So, like, look at the list of things that Skydance has produced, because obviously Skydance is the sister company to Annapurna in a lot of ways, because they're both run by um, Nelson, and Annapurna is just a more interesting... <laughs> <laughs> a more interesting film company than than Skydance is. But you look at the list of movies that Skydance do, and it's like Terminator Genesis, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Jack Reacher, Life, Baywatch, Geostorm, Annihilation. It's like, what the fuck happened mm. where whoever was in charge of Skydance like, signed off on them making... Geostorm. The... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, Annihilation in comparison to everything else. Like, It's such a big boys club. Is Geostorm make... not another one that, like... Was massively unsuccessful. Uh, it made two hundred twenty-one million dollars off a oh. one hundred twenty million dollar budget. Maybe I'm so thinking like, of something else then that like didn't properly come out or something. But, but yeah, like, the only thing that's like <laughs> successful really from this from this company that like mm. continually makes returns, Mission Impossible, which is just David Ellison really fucking liking Mission Impossible and kind of like taking it under his wing with 
with Ghost Protocol. All the other movies are like big boys club movies, and then you get this like female-led, highly intelligent book adaptation of mm. like a, a big sci-fi book winner, and Alex Garland turns in the most Alec Garland fucking movie. He does. And they're like, <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck is this shit? And it's like, this is what you paid what for. You <laughs> this is what you hired me to do. Yeah. Speaking of the book, I don't know if you want to do Ben's book club just in one big chunk or if you want to pepper it in throughout obviously the ending is something I know is very different but it's absolutely fascinating because I think there's a big story behind this where Alex Goldman read the book and then refused to read it again (laughs) refused to read it again didn't research anything I think purposely forgot a lot of the information and then just wrote a script from memory of what the book made him feel yeah which is a super interesting way to do an adaptation and yeah. I think the most interesting part is like he says he's not read the second or third yeah, book the, when he started work on it obviously only the first one was available advances of the second and third turn up on his doorstep and he doesn't read them and he has friends read them and give him like big beats and I think I mean I don't know if he basically put things that turn up in the sequels into the into this movie or if he just had a mental idea of where he would take it from there but he found that it matched up yeah like the the cancer subplot is is present in the future books and the doppelgangers are present in the future books but in the first book he ignores like the main location of the book doesn't touch on it at all doesn't touch on the like central mystery of the first book whatsoever and instead it's just like there's a lighthouse and there's a group of scientists and there's something that's affecting people's dna cool got it i can i can make something from this like <laughs> i understand the... it's the color out of space <laughs> in the in the book there's like an upside down tunnel that's an inverse version of the lighthouse and okay. like the lighthouse keeper has turned into a thing called the crawler that's like writing a sermon on the walls and is like killing people and is it uh, dark tower is the is the lighthouse keeper stephen king after he got hit by a van it's even more complicated than that <laughs> oh and, that's like, not possible <laughs> There's all kinds of like with like Jennifer Jason Lee's character mm. is still a psychologist and instead she's like hypnotized all of them to have like keywords to like listen to her. Would you so, kindly? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> that's a Bioshock like, reference for people who don't uh, play video games. That's where the book gets its title from. Is like there's a moment where she's terrified of the Natalie Portman character in the book and just starts screaming annihilation, annihilation, which is supposed to be the mm. code word to commit suicide. So do you like the book? It's interesting. I read it beforehand. It's not an easy read. I definitely didn't find myself like devouring it. It's mm-hmm. it's full of ideas. Right. Is it one of I, those where like I think it's for the best that somebody came in and picked it up and went and did something with it, but I don't think you're a good writer. I think Jeff Vandermeer is a good writer. Okay. I, I'm I'm saying it as like a point of view of like I couldn't get into it and right. like seeing a, a creative person who I enjoy more than Jeff Vandermeer pick it up and run with it. I enjoyed the film slightly more than the book, but it's purely because I'm more on Alex Garland's wavelength of how he sees the world than I yeah. was necessarily on Jeff Vandermeer's. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't read the ne- the next two, but I did make a point of like the moment this movie was announced and trailering, I'm like, right, I'm picking up the book and. Yeah seeing what this is about before I go see it. Speaking of seeing it, as we said, it did not open enough theatres to do that part of what we do. But it was a big critical hit, even if not that popular with audiences that 
scored it lowly and stuff. But why don't you talk about, on our first of four stops in 2018, uh, the most critically acclaimed movies of 2018? 2018 is a really good fucking year for movies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just reading through this list and like you got Roma, you got Burning, The Favourite, Shoplifters, Leave No Trace, Cold War, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Hereditary, mm-hmm. If Beale Street Could Talk, Black Panther, Sorry to Bother You, Black Klansman, Eighth Grade, <laughs> Annihilation. Jeez. The last three years of the 2010s are just absolutely stacked and you can see it from the fact that we've done like multiple, the first half of this decade I feel like we kind of motored through until we got to 2014, whereas the back half we've got like 12 episodes on three years just because (laughs) it, it, it becomes so stacked every single year and I've not even mentioned like A Star Is Born, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Support the Girls, Widows, just an absolutely jam packed year in terms of movies and especially like it's it's a good mix of like independent stuff stuff that's slightly more aimed at like intelligentsia and just big blockbuster stuff that's like taking stuff more seriously like the fact that you get spider-man and black panther in the same year yeah very different movies even if they're like in the same space i think in the same i don't know did arrival start this i mean it can't have there's always been sci-fi but like i feel hard sci-fi or classic sci-fi is back like like intelligent sci-fi not like it's an I action think... movie wearing sci-fi's clothes kind of thing i think i don't want to put it all on game of thrones feet but i do think there was a reevaluation of adaptations of intelligent science fiction work and intelligent fantasy work right. at kind of like the, the open of this this century, century at the opening of this decade and like you kind of saw it with Lord of the Rings kind of inspired a lot of people to do classical books like it was that one two punch of Lord of the Rings Harry Potter everyone's like right we need to do the YA fantasy adjacent book adaptation and obviously then Hunger Games kind of kicks off like oh we all YA all YA all YA yeah, Twilight, Twilight. Uh, yeah. Maze Runner. <laughs> exactly. But I feel like there was picking up these books that were slightly less read, but obviously critically acclaimed, like Game of Thrones. And you start to see it a lot more where people are optioning a lot more of this, like, this has won a Nebula Prize, or this has won a, the Hugo, or whatever it yeah, is. Like, they, yeah, yeah. like, picking up these these books that are nerd bait, but you can easily <laughs> adapt them. And you, see, and then you get it to, like, now we've got The Expanse, and... We've yes. got just a lot of things mm. working in these realms of adaptations that maybe previously wouldn't work because you wouldn't have the budget to, to do them. But sure. also, it's shown there is an appetite for this kind of yeah. science fiction fantasy. We talk a lot a lot about, you know, the kind of death of the mid-level film, game, whatever, whatever, whatever. And while I do think that's true, and like a lot of movies you're either massively expensive blockbuster tentpole or you're a tiny indie movie. I also think that, like, because of all the streaming services out there, potentially, but also just in general, there's a lot more variety out there and people are willing to, like, go towards these niches and be like, look, there is an audience here. It may not be a $2 billion audience, but there is an audience for this smart, slow sci-fi. I think it it is fascinating to think that, like... It's the same thing with games and music where as you start to get the ability to do this stuff on a smaller level, you have more and more of it produced and it becomes a question of like which of these are sustainable Mm -hmm. and a lot of the smaller stuff is obviously sustainable because there are enough people who are willing to go see a movie that was made for $5 million and give it $40, $50 million and give you a massive return on investment. The difference is, is the studio's no longer feel that like 20 to 30 million dollar investment on a comedy movie or a, a smart like science fiction fantasy kind of thing that you can do on the cheap or like even just a drama is worth it when we can spend 200 million dollars and get 
two billion dollars or spend even less on a horror movie and make even more (laughs) yeah exactly and it is that kind of thing where it's like either we need to spend a lot of money to make a huge return or we spend a little money to make a massive like percentage increase but there's not much point and Annihilation does kind of prove it where this movie if there were less competition or if it had had like I I don't even know how to advertise this movie because well it got criticised for how it was advertised because they took the three scenes with guns (laughs) <laughs> and, yes. weird, and weird creatures and made that the whole movie and it's like that's not representative of what this is like they even make a point quite early on of like everyone we've sent in so far has been military men let's try some smart ladies instead and it just so happens one of them's a soldier as well as being a scientist so yeah, yeah. And, and it's just obviously this movie struggled to find an audience in America and whether yeah. or not that's just it, again it was pitched to the wrong people yeah I could see a world where this was a worldwide not hit, but success. But it didn't. <laughs> and, you know, we'll never know. Like, it's get, it's called a massive theatrical flop. We don't know how much Netflix paid them for this. Netflix are renowned for overpaying for things. So it could have made its money back purely hey, on that deal. They paid as much as um, Amazon have paid for coming to America too. <laughs> God. As I said, we start at basically the end of the movie with Lena played by Natalie Portman, being grilled by a big team of scientists in hazmat suits. (laughs) I do like that it starts with kind of just Benedict Wong, and then you get that shot of through the window, she is being looked at like a fucking absolute freak show, and like everyone in the facility is is standing behind glass in a hazmat suit staring at her. Is this the first garland that Ben Wong's appeared in since Sunshine? I believe so. I'm just, it's just quite funny to think that like his role in in Sunshine is the, like, the fresh-faced fuck-up who blames himself for everything that goes wrong, and here he's, like, the big boss man who's kind of, like, taking control of this this big speech at the end. Still a captain, though, in Sunshine. He but is. I feel he kind of had a, a nice crest of movies that maybe elevated him a bit to the point where he's now... I mean, his role is not that much bigger, but, you know, yeah. As you said, he comes across as the boss man as opposed to uh, the captain that is, like, the ninth most important character. Benedict Wong's one of those people who I'm always happy to see show up in stuff now. Absolutely. He's so versatile and so good. Like, he can do this authority thing, but also he's really good in, like, comedic roles as well. Yeah. I kind of want to see someone, like, really serve him up with something that isn't Doctor Strange to have fun with. I mean, uh, he was really good in David Copperfield, and like his one episode guest spot on What We Do in the Shadows was fun as well. But yeah, okay. like he's he's not the only thing I remember him being like the lead in recently was Dead Class, which is what what it is. And also, he's not the lead; he's like the the mentor character. In that Are game. you saying he's not good in Gemini Man? Look, Gemini Man is not good, <laughs> but I had a good time. Watching it in the cinema because I went in high frame rate and I was like, "Oh no, this isn't there." If high frame rate doesn't work to make this better, but when the action is going and you can see everything, it looks almost amazing. But doesn't it look like wrong to the human eye? I, I, it looks everything like, I've seen in a fri- high frame rate that isn't a video game just looks kind of gross when you put no, it no, side it, by side. It absolutely does. There is a certain thing about it where like you can see people thinking about what they're going to say. <laughs> 
in a very weird way where it's like it's very obvious it's breaking like, you know, the the century old language of film yeah exactly but then when the action scenes start you're like oh i can see why this is something that someone wants to try and figure out what to do mm. um it's just a shame that like it breaks how people act and what the structure of a normal movie has to look like to the point where like you have to do something a little bit a bad max in a high frame rate <laughs> is the kind of thing that could work where it's like we're just action for two hours. I will never stop being punished for Mad Max, even though I will say again, your fault. <laughs> <laughs> I did see Jerome Cusson subtweet me by saying, absolutely one of the best films of the decade when he retweeted it. <laughs> again, Ben's fault, not mine. I've said, you can put anything on the list. So Lena either doesn't know or refuses to say what happened to the rest of her team. So as I said, right up front, we get that, like, ongoing mystery of like right all right she's the only survivor and then as soon as you start meeting these people you have a built-in mystery box of what happened to them and you know we get these more of this with like doesn't remember eating they went in with two weeks worth of rations that lasted four months and she has no memory of ever eating while they were in there and they do actually say like they do an inventory of their food and find some of it is missing but they don't remember eating it so it is interesting that they clearly are eating but at some point, they must have run out of food, or because the numbers start dropping, they have more of it. But still, it seems two weeks for five people would not last four months for one person, and they don't all die quickly. So something odd happened in there in terms of nourishment. I think, I think uh, the books kind of dive into it more, where like there is something timey-wimey going on inside yes. there. Where, where like it isn't actually four months in there. It just yeah yeah. I think the book inverses it where like time actually goes quicker okay. in the shimmer than than it does outside. So like the 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 Lena character spends like decades inside it okay. in in the book rather than outside of it. But like obviously Alex Garland is doing his own thing. And he is having a good old time with it. And his own thing in the past has included writing video games. I assume he plays video games. Did you get big Last of Us vibes off this entire movie? Absolutely. Cool. I did too, because we moved to this shot of the meteor hitting the lighthouse, the shimmery textures coming off it and everything, and like it's done really quickly, you hear no sound effects because we just hear this acoustic guitar, and that has become the soundtrack to this kind of sci-fi now. We still get things like synths and, and all of that, but there has also been this prevalence of, and like it probably isn't because of Last of Us, but nice beautiful guitar pieces over the top. The thing is, it's really interesting, because obviously the people they hire to do the score are Ben Salisbury and, and Jeff Barrow, and Obviously, Jeff Barrow is best known for being a part of Porter's Head, which is like mm -hmm. a huge 90s trip hop who I absolutely adore. Mm -hmm. And like very well known for all those synths and whatnot. And yeah. to have this more strip back thing. And obviously, like the Porter's Head influences come in full force when you get to the third act of this movie. <laughs> I was going to say. For the first like hour, it is very much instrumental acoustic. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of like, it almost like builds these layers to the score as it goes through to like build up to this moment where like the weirdness is layered as well so the score becomes weirder as you go through where it sounds how you would imagine a score to sound and then as you go through it morphs into this gestalt being remember when sue storm really liked porter's head because she's obsessed with patterns in fantastic four that's good stuff um reference like three people <laughs> 
people have seen fantastic, fantastic, whatever, however you're supposed to pronounce it. We see Lena before the incident uh, teaching, still in mourning for her husband, who has been presumed dead for a year. Only he suddenly arrives home, acting strange. And it's another one of these where you don't get a full-on info dump, you get bits and pieces and you put it together yourself, where, like, she is invited to a party by a colleague called Dan. She refuses and says something about, I'll be in our bedroom, the bedroom, and you're not betraying him, it's been a year, and and stuff like that. Daniel's very touchy-feely. He is. The arm on the shoulder, and like, when she says, like on a first watch, when you say something like, our bedroom, the bedroom, you could assume Dan is her ex or something. We'll find out that she had an affair with Dan, and like maybe they did to start to think of it as their bedroom, who knows. But you then see like pictures of the two in the army, you get flashbacks of them being very touchy-feely themselves, uh, her and her husband, Oscar Isaac, who, you know, at this point is an Alex Garland muse, I would say. He doesn't dance in this movie, though. He doesn't, unfortunately. How has Oscar Isaac become this guy who, I feel he is fan-cast for everything, and he also ends up in almost everything. Like, he is one of the biggest working actors, I feel. He probably isn't, but it feels like he's in so much stuff. It's because he shows up in stuff that people care about. Yeah. Obviously, it's it's a combination of, like, he's in Star Wars, he's in Annihilation, he's in mm. Spider-Verse briefly, he's gonna be in Dune. Like, he's obviously working with fanboy wanky directors and stuff like that, but yeah. he's also working in the kind of the bigger budget stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, he's good in pretty much everything. Is it because he can act, but he's also pretty and he's fun? <laughs> and yes, that is almost definitely entirely what it is. And like, he does make bad choices. Like, he's yeah. the fact that he did X Men Apocalypse is not oh, a, man. A, a good choice. No. I'm never going to see Triple Frontier. No. You say Star Wars. This filmed in Surrey, and he often did scenes on Last Jedi and this in the same day, because he used the same trailer and the film lots were across from each other, so he would just literally pop on his army fatigues, go over and do a little flashback scene with Natalie Portman, and then head over to be Finn's boyfriend in Last Jedi. So that's fun. He arrives home, and I feel the military stuff is great shorthand where... You hear, it's been a year, and you're like, oh, he's dead. You know, Dan is almost accusatory of her, like, you know, oh, why don't you move on? He's been gone for a year. And you're like, oh, he's dead, and she can't move on. But then when you realise he's in the army, it's like, well, MIA is not the same as KIA. And then he comes home, and he's behaving weirdly. I like that it starts off just being, like, it fits into that military tropes of, like, you know, oh, I don't even know where I was, and, like, the way that he will later sort of refuse to tell her where she, where he's going and stuff like that, where it does seem innocent enough. It's like, oh, you know, sometimes the military do get shipped over to, they know they're somewhere in the Middle East, but they often don't know which of the countries they're in or whatever. But then it quickly becomes full-on sci-fi when it's, like, he doesn't remember how he got back or what happened to his unit. So describe to me what happened for when you when you came back. And he's like, I was standing here and I recognised your face. And it's like, okay, that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> it's like a decently effective way of like, we've never seen, apart from, I think we've had like one flashback where they're in bed together. Yeah, yeah. Like a view of what this man is like regularly. But yeah. like Oscar Isaac is able to so fully do the body language of someone who is confused and out of his depth yeah. and just not fully there. But then obviously the scene kind of caps itself off with him taking a sip of water and the glass is now full of blood. Even before you 
know anything. Even before he speaks, there's just something off about how that body language is played where he just comes up the stairs and he isn't like, oh my god, it's you, I'm finally home. He's like just standing in her hallway like some sort of horror movie stalker or something and just not returning any of her, like, you know, overwhelmed that he's back kind of stuff. Um, Oscar Isaac's a good actor. So <laughs> they're rushed to hospital, they are intercepted on the way by clandestine government, paramilitary unit, whatever, and they are taken to Area X, where Lena is interrogated by Dr. Ventress about Kane, and then shown the Shimmer, which is a big bubble out in... Is it supposed to be Florida in the narrative? Uh, it's kind of like they don't really name okay. where it is. It's just it's just like a location that... Mm. Well, I mean, it's called Southern Reach, and they talk about Swampland, so that's got to be like Louisiana, Florida, or something. Yeah, like I mean, that. I think, yeah. I think, it, I think it's just it's a bit vague. I mean, I might be yeah. wrong. It's been it's been a while since I read it, but I don't remember like a okay. a firm location is given for where it took place. Yeah, they were planning to film in Florida, but it was so heavily vegetated that like you couldn't tell, you couldn't see like thirty feet away from them, and they wanted to get that sense of like look how huge this area is. So they filmed in England instead. <laughs> oh, like I. So obviously they're filming in Surrey, but I'm guessing like there's an awful lot of set decoration going on for a lot of these scenes. Oh, so they're just yeah. taking like British trees and then yeah. gussing up a little bit to look like Swampland, I'm assuming. South Forest Windsor Great Park, apparently. And then the uh, the final scene is in Norfolk uh, with Holcombe, which is like it goes from forest to beach like that. So, mm. you know, that makes sense. But an interesting choice, I would say, rather than yeah. filming in an actual swamp to film. Very weird, very weird to think that I spent a good three years of my life, like, <laughs> two minutes away from where they filmed this. Yeah, exactly. You could have run into Oscar Isaac. I was a bit far away at that point, but yeah, just the idea of them filming this in, in near yeah. Virginia water is yeah. odd. <laughs> it's very, you know, shadow facility. She wakes up in an orange jumpsuit in the fetal position, which, you know, a throwaway line in a minute. But, you know, you're not going to get a lawyer. Ventress is coming across fully as like big government, you're under arrest forever kind of thing and she is very callous in her questioning in general. She asks why did you stop asking about Kane? Because, you know, he was away for a year and she was regularly asking for updates from his unit or whatever. And then uh, I think after six months she just stopped and she's like, why did you stop? And wh what do you think of Jennifer Jason Lee in this? I was going to ask you the same thing. Um, <laughs> it's weird, I watched Possessor literally two nights ago in which she plays functionally the same character. Right. In in terms of like person in charge of the missions that they send a woman out on and stuff like that. She's got a, a, a weird energy to her. She does, and I don't know if that's her or something she's going for in the role. I think it is her. I think very much it is her. I think it's, it's really interesting because obviously she has this kind of quite big career resurgence yeah. in the last couple of years where like I feel like it starts with like Anomalisa but she does like Anomalisa, Hateful Eight, Good Time, Annihilation and stuff like that and she just kind of like starts to build this like slightly off kilter supporting actress performance who is just a presence who I think is quite I don't want to call it dominating, but it's definitely just, like, you can't quite keep your eyes off of her anytime she's mm. in a scene. She feels otherworldly in some ways. and It feels like she holds all the secrets as well. Yes. Do you know who read for this? Frances McDormand. 
Well, she'd been good. I know. <laughs> That's what I thought the whole time I watched it this time. Yeah, I don't think she's bad. It's just there's something a little bit off, but maybe that fits with the entire movie of there's something a bit off. Yeah, I think it was just very weird for me coming into it after having seen Possessor, where it's like there's a scene where she like rubs her hands and she does the exact same thing in, in that movie as well. <laughs> and they're both movies that are like very trippy yeah. and like science fiction horror-y, and I just couldn't keep the two of them like <laughs> separated in my mind having yeah. watched them in such close proximity. So speaking of trippy and science fiction-y, the shimmer, the bubble effect, the refracted light, which is, you know, your hint at the entire goddamn thing, but, you know, this, like, an oil slick or a bubble where you just see the rainbow, it's cool, it's different. It's got a different visual palette than most modern sci-fi does. And it is very, like, daytime and light-based, which is in keeping with Sunshine, I suppose. I mean, this this is Rob Hardy, who is, like, uh, he is, at this point, Garland's kind of like go-to cinematographer because he does Ex Machina together. They did Annihilation and they do Devs after this. Yeah, but and, yeah, there's a similar weird vibe to Devs visually, and it is again light-based. But then obviously in between Annihilation and Devs, he does Mission Impossible Fallout, and that's one of my favorite like cinematographer like action movies of the last ten years. Like it's a nice-looking movie. <laughs> it's a nice-looking movie. Like the guy is good. Like he can do yeah. this weird everything in this movie, and and this this feels like something out of like a comic book. Where I know mm. the type of comic books I enjoy are stuff from like Matthew Wilson, the colorist, where the colors just pop. Like he does wicked and divine and like that book is such a fucking colorful book and then you watch this movie and this movie is so much more colorful than an awful lot of other science fiction movies that are coming out you watch arrival and it's kind of monotone and a little bit washed out it still looks fantastic it makes the orange pop but in general it's a lot of gray and black and yeah yeah. and then this movie they step into the shimmer and everything's got the like the weird refracted bubble light (laughs) texture yeah and just the amount of colours that they get on the plant life and just the scenes of them just walking through this environment and just yeah. colour everywhere. Yeah. And the fact that a movie is willing to do this, because obviously like even down to the fucking Marvel movies where everything looks just a little bit washed out. And I don't know grey, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because like obviously a lot of those you see on opening weekend, you watch them with 3D glasses and they're all done in a way of like... I categorically do not do that, but yeah. <laughs> but like everything's made with the yeah, idea yeah, that like, yeah. a lot of people are going to watch these in like 3D IMAX and stuff like that so the colours are a little less yeah that's kind of one of my reasons I don't like it I I saw Tron Legacy for free (laughs) in the 3D and everything and I kept like lifting the glasses and putting them back down and be like oh my god this is like ruining how bright this is I don't like it but you mentioned Wicked and Divine being so colourful and to just look at that if you just flicked through that looking at it it looks like this big bright vibrant happy comic and it's so bleak (laughs) and deals with such big stuff and i think that's the same here where like he loves making a big colorful thing that is just dealing with i mean the whole the movie's called annihilation it's not really the biggest take to be like the whole movie's about self-destruction and trying to find a reason to not do that and stuff like that so yeah again it's this beautiful movie where like you just kind of want to wander around inside the shimmer but it's dealing with such heavy subjects like maybe they're a bit cliche because Nobody comes back. It's expanding. She realizes Kane came back, so this is suddenly very interesting. She meets Thorinson, Cass, and Josie, who are preparing to go in. Now, each of these women has a like. I don't know if you if you feel it's like a bit 
lazy shorthand, like, oh, this one's an alcoholic, this one self-harms, this one lost a child, like... Yeah, yeah, but I think it's the entire point is, like, the movie is working so much more in metaphor than in character, and I think, again, and I think it's why I admire it more than love it is because, like, they don't delve into the emotion of this stuff, like... I love Tessa Thompson. Mm-hmm. Josie doesn't isn't get, a person, really. Yeah, we get we get told that she self harms. You yeah. see her with her 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 coat taken off, and you can see her arms in the scene where she she disappears. Mm-hmm. But she never gets to actually like emote the stuff that we're told about her. Really, you and, just like, know scenes... that she's the quiet one of the group, which is in fitting with the self harm. You know, oh, I just did my Cambridge postdoc and blah blah. Yeah. blah. Exposits some science and holds the camera, but like everything else there's not and that's where i'm like this cast of characters give them each a, a, an episode of a of a one hour drama type thing and i'm fully on board but then like does that ruin some of the magic of the the shimmer and the central lena like mystery or whatever but it's unfortunate because yeah we are firmly on record as being massive fans of tessa thompson gina rodriguez is great in this getting to be a little bit more like foul mouth and physical kind of thing. Yeah, like, off, coming off of, like, obviously at this point she's most well known for Jane the Virgin, so getting to do something that's a little bit more... Adult. adult or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not that Jane the Virgin isn't adult, but, no, like, but... A little, I don't even want to call it broad, because obviously, like, it's playing on that stuff, but, like, it's it's a different role to who Jane is on Jane the Virgin. Yeah. Firmly. Which I but, haven't even seen, and I can tell. Like, it's so different. I don't need the movie to be about the emotions within these characters, because obviously it's not something this movie cares about. This movie is so much more interested in, like, Again, like the conversation that Lena and Ventress have inside the, the military base, where they're like, "It's not suicide; it's self-destruction." And like everyone who comes in here is dealing with something. Like Lena has cheated on her husband. Yeah. Ventress has cancer. Thorinson's an alcoholic. Josie is is a self-harmer, and Cass is is she's mourning the death of both her old self and her daughter. She yeah. she very much says. And this movie is all about all of those things. Yeah. And he's have... great at capturing those kinds of. Like, he has obviously never been a mother who's lost her child, but I feel he is very good at drilling down to the, like, capturing the pain of something in a very beautiful way. That sentence of, like, you're mourning two people, you're mourning her and who you used to be and stuff like that, and also just the general monologuing about, like, very few of us commit suicide, almost all of us self-destruct, and in this flashback with Lena and Kane again, she says the silence around it is louder than usual. Like, he, you know, you can tell he came from a background in wanky books, you know? (laughs) The movie is so much more interested in, and I've seen people say, like, this movie's about cancer. I um, saw that last night, and I was like, what? Like, I mean, you've got some evidence to back your theory up, but to just definitively say that feels a bit of a stretch. I mean, like, it's part of the fun of this movie, is that you can have so many different interpretations of it. Like, to me personally, this movie feels like it's not so much about... Obviously, self-destruction is a big part of it, but I think when it refers to self-destruction, it more means self-change, the destruction of the old self, because obviously this entire movie is... And there's a big question at the end about whether or not it's Lena or <laughs> well, the duplicate that escapes. We're going to talk um, about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She yeah. says, like, I don't think it's here to destroy, I think it's here to create something new. Yeah. And, like, you know, is that the idea? She came out of this. That's the whole thing. Like, all these people with a reason to not want to come back out, because it will quickly become clear this is a suicide mission as far as everyone other than Lena is concerned. She is the unique one who found a way to come out. Mm. Or did she? Even then, I think Josie gets the thing where, like, again, yes it's a suicide mission but it's more in terms of like I want the death of myself who was scared (laughs) and in her final moments she isn't scared she's she's far more like 
you know, she's taken her jacket off. She's not hiding. She's she's at peace. She's she's less meek. And yeah. again, it, it feels like it's more about that. It's more about the ways in which yeah. your self-destructive impulses, once you let them go or stop engaging in them, you can become a new person afterwards. Yeah. And again, it, it's so thoroughly steeped in metaphor <laughs> and shorthand for this kind of stuff because yeah. it's so much more interested in like the visual representation of this stuff or just like a kaleidoscopic emotional collage of how this stuff is working yeah as opposed to like this is not boyhood or florida project where like we're gonna show you emotion like hmm. rip there and have like people emoting on screen like no one really emotes in this movie no they're all kind of keeping their shit to themselves kind of thing yeah and it's it's so it's like again because i don't again it does lead into like is alex garland a cold director and it's like i don't think he is I no just think he, he shows emotion in a different way to those kind of more empathetic movies we're talking about two movies i don't like and then a director i do love and like when you give it that phrasing it makes it sound like i'm a cold unemotional person which i don't think i am it's just it's it's the style of presentation of yeah. that kind of emotional stuff I don't think I saw either. I think it's just one that is very much a raw emotional showcase, whereas yeah. this is more like, in some ways, just a different way of processing emotions. Like, this is a movie about depression and grief. Yeah, and- I think that's more where, like, I go with that kind of stuff, whereas I think Boyhood and Florida Projects are much more, we're going to sit you in the room with the shouting child or the, or the screaming per you know, the person going through something kind of thing, and you're just going to yeah. sit there and watch it roar. And I'm a little bit more like, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd it's, rather have the big wanky existential conversation about life itself. Um, yes. Speaking of which, one of these flashbacks, we see Lena and Kane looking at the moon in the day, and, and he says it's like God made a mistake. Oh, she says it's like God made a mistake. And he's like, well, God doesn't make mistakes, that's sort of the point. And she goes on talking about how aging is a fault in our genes and some cells are immortal. And I like that the whole movie is like, look how smart these women are. And like, he's like basically turned on by how clever she is. And like, I like how you make fun of me and like sound so clever doing it. And like, she mocks him for his little comment about stargazing, kind of, oh, we're looking up at the same stars and everything. And they have a really great chemistry. Like, you know, what a difficult job for Natalie Portman. You're going to do this cool sci fi thing wandering around with these cool ladies. And also, you're just going to be constantly fumbling with Oscar Isaac. Okay, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> they have a great chemistry and like i don't think you need more than what they than what we have from them it's weird because he's such an he's such a massive linchpin for the whole movie but his screen time is quite small but peppering in just enough at just the right moments because obviously a big a big conceit of the movie is not only are we getting lena's flashbacks to like the before times but we're also having them find video footage of oh you can't do sci-fi without found footage ben (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing it's like you never quite forget that oscar isaac is is on the edges of this movie is because he's sort of the key he's the first one to come out like yeah yeah. every every 15 minutes you either get a flashback or you get like new footage of him interacting with the shimmer and it, it creates this nice contrast not only to like what they're dealing with but also between what he's like before and after. I was gonna say, like, there is the there is a stark contrast with how he interacts with all the stuff they're finding and how the ladies do. He has more of a like boyish fascination with it. And maybe it's because we know it's safe and in the past, whereas they're living in it right now, so like who the fuck knows what's gonna happen next. But yeah, there is a sort of carefree nature to him here. And maybe this is telling about his mentality. 
guilty and and you know this idea that he found out she was having an affair and that made him super fucking depressed and he went into this mission that he knew he might not come back from and stuff but then like when he's with his unit in here he seems like he's i don't know if he's having more fun than he did with his wife or maybe you know since what happened happened he's having more fun in here than he did with his wife but yeah there is a there is a fascinating thing to like just paying attention to his behavior every time he he shows up as i said this badass group of lady scientists anya like macking on lena immediately like are you single (laughs) taking bets on her background before they they met her kind of thing and it is interesting she makes the big decision to not tell them about kane being because they talk about kane like oh one guy came out and she just sort of keeps real fucking quiet about it. Which which, which a... I like is both the smartest thing to do and also the dumbest thing yeah, to do in the context. Yeah, it's that thing where you've sealed your own fate, but also you shouldn't tell them that. <laughs> yeah, like it, it would have, I mean, at this point it maybe would have made them feel better, but then she also isn't planning on going on the expedition at this point. Yes, true. And then we get the reason from Ventress, like, you know, well one of them. <laughs> she says she spent so long picking the people who go in and, and watching them go off and not come back and she's just hit this point where she herself needs to go in, kind of thing. And I, I think that's an interesting reason even if it ends up to potentially not be the real one why she went in. And this key point of Lena believes she can help. She's not going in on the suicide mission, she's going in because she sincerely believes she is the one person who can help her husband. You know, he's sitting there in a coma, dying, and she thinks she can go in and help and this key idea that she is both soldier and scientist so she is uniquely suited to survive and thrive kind of thing yeah and, um, and obviously the movie makes a good point of like yeah she is the best person equipped for this because like yeah. the moment they first encounter something in the shimmer she's just like <laughs> she murders it <laughs> <laughs> you just hit the fuck down bitches I'm I'm on top of this badass shot of her like directly to camera firing an assault rifle yeah pretty cool so they head into the shimmer immediately lose track of time they wake up in tents they don't remember pitching some of their food is gone and the flora and fauna are Uh, strange to say the least but the second they step through so this is another movie that does title cards and it's like you know area x the shimmer the lighthouse blah 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 the second they go through we cut back to her riding dan (laughs) not not her husband and you're like ah okay but then we go back so like they they do this great job of i think the flashbacks are kind of what make it it's not all of what makes it work for me but while i was watching it for the first time I think I just tweeted, like, why did nobody tell me Annihilation is extremely my shirt? Like, the style of it. It's a grounding force, I think, which yeah. is, like, really smart in terms of, like, you're in this world that feels so alien, and I guess people are uh, reacting to it in ways that you imagine people would react to it. Yeah. And so you keep this grounding force of the contrast between what real life is like and what life is like in this alien, and... bizarre dimension. Yeah, and it's interesting to see which ones they choose to put where kind of thing there's a lot of those matching shots of here's lena's back and then you cut to (laughs) lena's back like unclothed and like her kind of pulsing her like back muscles indeed which you know when we know what's gonna happen in there like but and like also these flashbacks are potentially not playing out chronologically so like yeah just choosing the ones that are thematically appropriate is fun immediately just hitting you over the head with these are smart ladies like they took an inventory of their food to estimate how long they've been in here Josie establishes all the electronics work fine that anything that sends a signal in or out and compasses are just fucked for some reason and then we get our first jump scare with (laughs) the unseen creature which you know this is what they marketed the movie as and does what one of two of these (laughs) really yeah like like, there's there's like three creature designs in the movie that are based on like real animals 
only two of which are actually like scary scary things and even then i think the movie is is so uninterested in trying to scare you in a lot of ways yeah. with this stuff like it feels even, like this is for them this isn't for us kind of thing. yeah like i keep on thinking of the bear scene where like yeah. it's tense but when Cass gets taken by the bear it's like oh like it, it doesn't it doesn't make you jump out of your skin no, I feel. it just takes her very casually like right in front of them like they're all gathered together and it just takes her because it's so yeah. dark <laughs> so, yeah oh, it's okay. just it's, it's just like it could obviously be seen as scary and there are tense moments but I think the movie's just like yeah yeah this is just something that's happening it's not we are not going for for paranormal activity in terms of like making you feel terrified no the show is weird this is one way it's weird (laughs) and it's very matter of fact as well yeah so this is an albino alligator with shark teeth essentially (laughs) and yeah Lena shoots it to death and then they study it and like the POV shot from inside its mouth looking out and then when it's like gotten too heavy for Gina so she drops it and like it closes again just clever filmmaking (laughs) and yeah things aren't quite right it has concentric circles of teeth that's weird so they set up base camp at Ventress said how the bubble is expanding in a few months it'll be here they find what used to be the HQ notably smaller so I guess as this situation got like more serious they put more resource into it but yeah they find what used to be the Southern Reach HQ which is the name of the trilogy I believe or and they find a recording of Kane's unit in here and one of them this, had a very bad me, time <laughs> yeah, this to me is more terrifying than any of the like creatures in it is just mm. the prolonged nature of them carving this man's stomach open and yes. then inside he doesn't have organs he has like tentacles yeah and, and then like the one that really fucking gets me is the shot of oscar Isaac putting his hand under it yeah <laughs> Like, it looks fake, but it's just like, it's such like a, a body horror kind of like, yeah, yeah. visceral, like, uh. And again, like, he seems so much more boyish in how he tackles all of this shit than them. They have the right reaction, they're fucking horrified, and he's like, <laughs> check it out, look, I'm gonna touch it. You have to imagine that these guys are, like, several weeks further on into this, yeah. like, adventure. Like, these guys have been in there, we don't know how long they've been in there, but, like, by the time they're doing this, this guy is, like, he's not even, like, fighting back against them cutting his stomach I know, open. that's the part that's a little bit fucked. It's like, where did you, how did you reach this conclusion of, let's do this? Like, he doesn't seem like it's being done against his will until, you know, the knife's actually in him, and he's like, actually, this hurts a lot. <laughs> And at first it's like, oh, are they saying it doesn't hurt him? Because he's just sort of... And maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's more just freaking him out than it is physically painful. But that's the sort of second level to this, that like they as a group sat down and decided to do this more than like what's actually in there. But what's in there is super fucked up. Yeah, and my favourite beat of this is obviously Ventress wanders off uh-huh. as soon as this clip is finished and she's everyone else is kind of like reacting <laughs> and she's just like well I've, I've been here before like I've uh, been to this base I know where they shot this video and then she walks into like the, the pool room and there's just this fucking starburst of vegetation again very last of us nature reclaiming the land and overgrown plants on man made structures and then yeah these people bursting open into plant like things that grow into the wall all of this is very last of us and yeah, it's, it's weirdly it's... beautiful it's like a weird tree man against the wall. <laughs> yeah, like it's not quite cordyceps. 
like no, The no. Last of Us is, or even like The Girl with All the Gifts. Like there was a weird spate of like cordyceps zombie media in the early 2010s. I mean, it's an inherently uh, fucked up thing in nature. So like, there's nothing scarier than what's actually real, man. Yes, um, yes, exactly. But yeah, this is just like this isn't even like he obviously dies from his wound, but whatever changed him made him into I don't even know like it's plants, it's it's fungus, it's just all kinds of yeah. weird stuff. And his there. head is like ten feet above the rest of him <laughs> and then like the key thing of like you know Josie finds the knife that he dropped in that you know that this is that was the chair he was sitting in and, and it just happened from here is all very like yeah, I, li- and, I like that I... Anya immediately denies this, despite being the one with the extensive medical history. She's like, nah, nah, fuck it, trick of the light, I've seen weird stuff, it's not real. And it's like, you're the one person who should be, like, the most on board with weird medical shit. But I guess I guess it's a matter of, like, she she's on board with weird medical shit, but this takes it a step beyond. She mm. has her level of, like, knowledge. Whereas this has gone else beyond is... my understanding, therefore yeah. I refuse it. <laughs> and everyone else is a little bit more hypothetical in terms of how they how they do stuff with a biologist and a physicist like i've seen cells on a slide i haven't seen inside of like living people (laughs) before that you do get the scene with Cass subtly grilling lena about her past and like we establish this idea of all of them having stuff to them yeah stuff they're they're trying to escape and ventress is right now the anomaly but we will later find out she has cancer and also you know when lena sees kane's name on the wall for the first time of of the the guard schedule you know that hits her quite heavily and everything but this whole like oh we found the previous people's base it's like we're we're drifting into these kind of found footage horror movie type spaces here and like that's the appealing part of those movies so i like that it's in here during the night a strange creature attacks them and drags Cass away. They keep calling it a bear, but the structure of its face means I cannot call it a bear, personally. <laughs> but, so we get the flashback to Kane leaving a day early. It's a very sudden goodbye. It's very withdrawn goodbye. He is very emotionally cold with her. He wakes her up and she's super groggy and he's just like, yeah, bye, I'm going. Basically, and it's like, hmm. Okay. And then to move to the the microscope slides of the cells dividing with the shimmer effect that she'll keep looking at. This is an interesting contrast to the book, because in the book, the biologist ingests some pollen that makes her immune to kind of like human stuff. And so she is the only one, I think, who has like internalized the shimmer and she is like glowing in a different way to everyone else. And like it's, mm. it's morphing her in that way, whereas the, the movie kind of turns it more into like your existence in the shimmer is going to change you no matter what and i just i it, it's just an interesting contrast where like i think it more takes it into like personal effect on like what happens to you where some people are like more able to like accept the changes that are going on whereas other people rebel against it mm. and i think that's an interesting contrast that they have between these characters from this point onwards Another thing this movie does really well, like, the scenes in the dark look darker than movies ever really do, where, you know, you just get this ridiculous amount of artificial light that because you have to be able to fucking see something, but there's just something about that watchtower against a dark sky, and you can't... Like, you can still see it, but, like, I don't know, they've captured darkness on film quite well. They have, but I do think that the weakest part of it is, is like, when when Cass gets taken, yeah. you're like, oh, they can't see anything. It's like, she was about a <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's right fucking there. We get this brief conversation, like, why did my husband volunteer for a suicide mission? And then, yeah, the little conversation about that and subtly commenting on her marriage. Like, you know, people try and escape perfect jobs, good marriages, this, that, and the other for reasons that are unknown and 
they don't push it further because the noise, the hole in the fence, Cass gets grabbed, blah, blah, blah. So they bicker about the best course of action. They end up pushing further in. Josie presents the theory that everything in the Shimmer is being refracted, not just light, which is how, like, species are merging with each other or whatever, which is... An interesting, cool concept, and it makes sense given the shimmery effect with the light of refraction, but yeah. Um, So Anya and Josie really want to leave. Ventress is determined to go on, and Thorinson has been getting really aggressive pretty much since she saw the weird body horror shit. Because they present these theories, either something killed them, or they went crazy and killed each other. And again, this feels like good old-fashioned sci-fi where, like, you know, it's man's inhumanity to man and stuff, and, and the psychological effects making them into the monster and whatever. And you can just see her going down this path towards she's going to be the one that flips out and kills them all. This is also the first thing where you see the tattoo on her arm as well. Yes, the, f- the mysterious tattoos. That none of them had when they went in. Which I, I take to assume is when the shimmer starts to take effect on them. I know some people say it's like when you've been changed or taken by the shimmer, but I think it just kind mm. of is more of a mark of like when it's when it's taking that effect on you because obviously like no one else has it at this point. I, I it's it's a tough one to kind of like well, figure out because like they show up at odd points. Cause obviously the first time we see it in the movie is Lena in the framing narrative where she's got it on her arm when yeah. she's talking to Benedict Wong. But this is the first time we see it on someone in the Shimmer. Well, the soldier has it in the found footage video. Yes, he does. Yes, and that was true. just my assumption is that it's shimmered onto them, kind of thing. Mm. It's refracted onto them. Rather than, like, a physical effect being, like, that the alien can do intricate tattoo work, you know? (laughs) Like, that seems a bit odd to me. But, like, Lena gets a bruise that then will... I think it's in the spot where where the tattoo will appear. And I just assume it's, like, it's just part of a physical change or something. And... So it refracts... So it is a sign that you've been absorbed into the shimmer, but it's just you've had the... this this soldier's tattoo refracted onto yeah, you. Yeah, that's how is... I always took it. I think there are questions to be asked about what exactly constitutes being, like, taken by the Shimmer and, like, other life forms or the alien-type creature in the lighthouse. Is that a single entity? Is everything in the Shimmer part of it? Like, you know, this is all up in the air, really. <laughs> Lena confirms in the present that she lied to them about... Because they're like, we want to turn back. And Ventress is off to the lighthouse. And she's like, um, we should go more towards the lighthouse because it's the best way to get out because the coastline will be safer. And they're like, you're not fucking lying, are you? No, 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 no. But she confirms, like, why would back be any more safe than forward... Etc. Etc. Just said whatever to get those two to go, and uh, then we get the bombshell about the cancer to fill in that anomalous gap about what made Ventress self-destructive. They spot the white deer with the flowers and the antlers. You know, very sort of Japanese mythology kind of thing. I don't know if that was a deliberate thing or just sort of you know what would it what would cool weird creatures look like i don't know i, I think it makes an interesting counterpoint is i think the most interesting thing is because like this stuff is present in the book as well the most memorable one is the fucking dolphin with human eyes that they keep encountering and it's supposed to imply that like i can't remember if it is her husband or if oh it's yeah else i remember mission. reading that that the that kane is still in there in one of the animals yeah <laughs> yeah and so like in but in the book they encounter like the biologist encounters an animal with human eyes and it's supposed to be implied that, like, you just turn into an animal inside the, yeah. inside the shimmer. And they do present this theory that Cass went into the bear rather than the bear is just able to mimic human sounds. I don't project it, 
but I am sort of like, what if it's just a cool uh, predatory animal that can mimic sounds? What if it's instead refracted from like a bird or a monkey that can mimic calls? But you know, maybe that is what's going. I mean, if that's what's in the book, that does sound more in line. More of the like the overgrown houses and the the plant people that you assume are going to come alive, because <laughs> that's what horror trains you to think. But yeah, there's these like formations of plants that are in perfect shapes of like human bodies, and they're just standing around the place, and it's all very creepy. But again, in broad daylight with lots of colours, and yet it's unsettling. So they camp out in a house that looks a lot like Lena and Kane's house, <laughs> but is not, of course. Thorinson turns on them, ties them up, claims she didn't see the bear, but then the bear fucking brutally murders her before Josie kills it. Lena tests her cells and witnesses the the mutation and stuff, and then we get the flashback montage of her cheating with Dan and regretting it and stuff, and Dan's little monologue defending adultery <laughs> and thinking she hates herself, and Lena saying that, you know, Cain found out, and that's... She never says... I'm going to save him because I love him. It's, I'm going to save him because I owe him, because I potentially am the reason he went in here. So I need to make good on that, because I drove him to his potential death. And then Thorinson, of course, discovers the locket with Kane's picture in it. And, uh, yeah, we get a little horror movie scene with her tying them to the chairs and being like, I never saw a fucking bear. And I wonder if this would have been more interesting if we didn't see the bear. If we just saw, like, if Cass just disappeared in a scream or something. Yeah, because I, I, I do think the revelation of the bear in this moment mm. would have a lot more impact as yeah. well. Because obviously, like, it still works because you never get to see a close-up of the bear. But then the revelation of its face in this scene is <laughs> fucking horrifying. A little bit. A little bit. Because, you know, she's building to this moment of potentially killing one of them. And then you hear Cass screaming from outside. And you're like, oh, shit. And she runs outside. And then immediately is mauled to death. And in comes the bear. Which just stalks them a little bit. Sniffs them. Potentially nibbles on <laughs> Josie's shoulder. Or does something, like, does something to her. And it just makes these horrifying cast noises occasionally. And it's like, oh, <laughs> You've uncovered a thing that, like, in a different movie would have been the central kill-it monster for, like, 90 straight minutes. But it's just sort of brushed off because Josie just kills it. But a very creepy thing. So Josie, the next morning, remains behind, turns into one of the flower things. It's, it's such a nice... I'd like it as an ending for her yeah. in terms of just, like, it feels so much more peaceful than everything else, where yeah. she's like, Ventress wants to, to fight it, you want to face it. I just want to accept it. Yeah. yeah. As we said, seeing her sleeveless for the first time, seeing those scars, you see the, like... It looks like grass, almost, like, mm. over her scars or something. And I don't know if there's some sort of implication that her scars are making it, like, easier to come out of her or what. I, I really don't know. But that she, it's interesting that she's the first one to have this radical physical effect. And none of the others turn to plants, but she does. And it, potentially because of this acceptance, that, like, all the people that are standing around in that arrangement are people that just accepted what was happening kind of thing. Well, that's yeah. the question, because obviously they say they evacuated it, so is it mm -hmm. like is it like a memory of what people are like that the plants have grown into, and she decides yeah. this is a happier existence, or is it that they didn't actually manage to evacuate people, and this is yeah. people who were turned into something by the shimmer? And that you never know, because Lena just loses sight of her. And for all yeah. we know, Josie's fucking hiding in a bush off camera. <laughs> like, we don't fucking know. There's so many dual alternatives to everything, where yes. it's like, is this this or is this this and i think it becomes interesting with particularly with ventress in this mm -hmm. kind of like showdown in the in the lighthouse yeah. they reach the lighthouse 
Lena finds this petrified, in the literal sense, cross-legged corpse in the middle of like a, a very clear blast radius. And then there's like this big fucking hole in the... Well, it's actually not that big, is actually what makes it kind of interesting. It's a yeah, relatively no. small hole. We, and we, we saw like, it at the, the beginning. It's the remnant of the meteor that yeah, exactly. struck in the first shot of the movie. Exactly. And there's a camera pointed directly at the corpse. She reviews the tape, and Kane basically blows himself up with a flashbang, only for a second Kane to step into view, and it becomes very clear why he was acting strangely when he returned home. So Lena tells... Lomax that she came back because she was the only one who wanted to basically. I mean I'm paraphrasing massively there but like all of the others went in here with some kind of, even if they didn't want to die, they didn't have an active reason to want to live at the time or whatever whereas she had this determined mission to get back out to save Kane kind of thing and we see another flashback of them just sitting together reading and it's just nice you know and it's like we've seen them like wrestling a little bit and like making out and everything which is nice in a different way but like this is i don't know this is just a snapshot of their life and it's like a happier time kind of thing but outside this lighthouse there's a weird arrangement of skeletons this feels like and i think the book kind of delves into it too where like the lighthouse is location it's not the the final location of anything but like Mm. everything stems back to the lighthouse keeper and also it's where every single one of the expeditions ends up right and i mean there's a big fucking glowing light on it yes and but it's where she finds basically every single journal from every other expedition and we get a lot of the context of what her husband did on the previous expedition where she's reading through his journal of the events of what happened there but she finds basically this huge fucking pit of the journals in the center of the lighthouse oh that he's been just chucking them into (laughs) yeah and but they're from like all 12 different expeditions and stuff like that and it's just Hmm. this this kind of like everyone ends up here at some point in their journey and it's like you have to decide what to do and it's really interesting and obviously the movie kind of takes this into being a little bit different to that but it still does feel like the focal point where like these corpses are the previous people who have come here and for whatever reason someone has arranged them in some kind of like tribalistic way whether yeah. or not the, the <laughs> as a warning people. or a like yeah was it living people was it an effect of what's happening here did people get refracted into like disassembled almost so yeah she watches the footage and it's like you see a little bit of down the hole you see the glowing orb you see the alienish creature and then you go to him sitting in the position and saying if i wasn't kane what was i was i you were you me this is when the movie starts to get into like you doubt every single person you see (laughs) yeah yeah and like when you consider the entire movie is being told by Lena, quote unquote, is any of this accurate? Did any of this happen? We we don't know. But like, so I, do, do you want to go into that now? Then do you want to go into like, do you think it's actual Lena who escapes, or is it Shimmer I Lena? I think it is, but well, that's what I mean about like it's debatable what actually happens to you in there. Are we saying that like there is one Shimmer entity thing that is the orb, which doesn't really make sense because if Kane left why is there still an orb in there and clearly something happens with you see it it happened to ventress because when she eventually goes down the hole ventress is missing half of her fucking face which you yeah. s- you see happens when the portman doppelganger is forming the face sort of comes last kind of thing so clearly yeah. ventress is surrendering to the last or the Ventress doppelganger is just finishing turning into Ventress or whatever. That's, that's, like, what, that's what I'm wondering is because obviously, like, you've got, there's like two interpretations there. It's either Ventress fully lets herself go and becomes the glowing orb, mm-hmm. or Ventress had already let herself go before this. The doppelganger takes her over and then decides that Lena is a better 
a like vessel to take out into the into the real world and so decides to become her instead mm. like i i don't know which one of those i prefer as an i think i go for more of a like kind of everything the whole shimmer effect is the alien kind of thing and mm. like even if it doesn't fully replace you with a doppelganger, it's passed some of itself into you. Because they all talk about how they feel that their bodies are changing, and Anya has that line about she can see her fingerprints moving. And and Kane in this shot, I think, says he can feel himself changing or whatever, and it's like, is the doppelganger just a weird psychological effect, and actually you've already got some of it in you or whatever, or... Is, I mean, some people subscribe to the idea that, like, you know, they do their little mimic mirror dance thing and both end up on the floor and then there's a camera cut. Mm. And then she makes it take a flashbang and then just runs away. And it's like, did the doppelganger run away? And Lena is left there because it, it touches Kane's head in its dying moments and then burns the whole lighthouse down and, like, cradles in the fetal position in the in the impact crater. And it's like, is that the last vestiges of Lena trying to, like, destroy this thing? Have they just swapped? Did they physically swap? Did their, like, essences transfer? You know, like... Who fucking knows? Yeah, there, there, there's so much to unpack, and it's why it's so cool, because you can have whatever interpretation you want about what yeah. this is, what it does. I do think that the movie has some like fairly concrete things, like the shimmer does burn. Yes. In the framing narrative at the very end, Benedict Wong does refer to everything in the past tense. Yes. So like, it makes it sound like the this shimmer is has over. disappeared. Like, you know, well, it's all done, but clearly it isn't. This whole last sequence is phenomenal. Like As we said, like, this is when the Bound of Salisbury, George, Jeff Barrow score kind of oh, like, so Oh, unnerving. Devs is like entirely this. There's so much of this kind of piercing, loud, fuzzy music kind of thing. I don't yeah, know it, if it's the they, same they, musical team, but it is the same musical okay, team. And then I think sense, the insects though. are involved as well. But yeah, the, the the whole sequence is weird. Like obviously, you get Sonoya Mizuno, who most famous for being in Ex Machina. I believe she was in Devs as well. Is is like playing the Shimmer person. I don't know if it's the same person that. Oscar Isaac's partner made a documentary about the person that choreographed the mimicking scene, and I don't know if it's the person physically playing the humanoid that choreographed it, but, like, yeah, clearly he was like, oh, we know a person, kind of thing. (laughs) It doesn't do anything to her, but it also kind of does. Like, so, like, the Ventress one does this little monologue about, you know, it's gonna grow until it's everything... And you know, saying annihilation, whatever. You know, she tries to shoot it, and the fucking bullets curve around it, and fr- their arcs freeze in the air. It feels very video gamey, and it's just there when she goes upstairs and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, this is very clearly. There's more than just it's a weird alien that can possess you. Like it must be in some way linked to all of it. Because when it dies, the the trees outside melt. Everyone's like, we don't know what it wants. It's like, well, it doesn't want anything. It's yeah, just want like, is a very arrogant human position to take, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's it's the interesting thing. Like in this term, annihilation just means change. Like it doesn't. It yeah. arrives and it changes things, and it doesn't have goals. It's not set up to to do anything in particular. It just does. Yeah. But we, we just assume do. a sentient, hostile agenda or a desire for personal gain. It's like, again, I think this is what he's more interested in is like the arrogance of humanity in that way to assume everything is on board with its agenda. But like what we actually see is just they're almost in this this dance, this this puzzle 
again it feels like a video game it's like right when i step forward it steps forward when i go left it goes right kind of thing how she can manipulate it to not be with it but then she runs for the door and it also (laughs) runs for the door whenever she does something reactive yes violent or or fast or like something that it's not set up for it immediately retaliates in terms of like hostility like it senses hostility and fear but then when she does something calm and collected like just pulling the clip on the grenade it's like it, it doesn't sense mm. danger in in that way and like obviously you can have the interpretation that like it's actually lena that like has the grenade and dies as like a human being yeah rather than rather than the shimmer creature but i it does feel like the shimmer is more reactive than than anything else and she even says that in the closing scene where she's like it didn't attack me i attacked it exactly and like this idea that the soldier kind of we don't know everything that happened when he encountered it maybe he went through a similar sequence but she's like it busts her open like she reaches for the thing and it just knocks her down and she's bleeding loads but from what we can see oscar isaac kane just had some chill bro time and talked to the fucking thing her one doesn't talk well maybe it's been doing a lot of talking we don't know but his one He's like, oh, fine, Lena. And it says, I will. So it's clearly reached a point of... If we consider it's, like, slowly becoming whatever, it's reached a point where it can have a conversation. And just this idea that the soldier just hung out with it and bonded with it and just accepted his own death while the scientist freaks out and tries to attack it kind of thing. It's it's an interesting dichotomy there. And Mm. potentially speaking to his acceptance versus her desire to keep fighting and get out and everything where this creature doesn't represent the end of the journey it represents a, an obstacle and getting back out but yeah and like taking the flashbang and like you know that that last look between them as the door closes kind of thing very very black swan very mm-hmm. interesting that we start this mini series with yeah. black swan and i mean obviously we're not near the end we've got seven episodes to record after this but yeah. the fact that near the end we get another natalie portman doing vague dance motion movies yeah. and like lots of and... mirroring and lots of twin imagery as well she called both of these out as like she said she had no interest in either of these genres but then she was so interested in working with the directors that she just went for it kind of thing and like you can see how her experience with star wars might have made her be like well the hell with sci-fi kind of thing i mean that's the thing is natalie portman is someone who has not done an awful lot of movies in this decade Hmm. but like there are three really fucking good movies from her like with black swan with annihilation and with with jackie as like a a core core three in there i mean Um, (laughs) quality over quantity exactly exactly like she's got three just really fucking good performances and then she's got lucy in the sky Yes, Sorry, yes. no, that doesn't exist. And based on the box office, it doesn't. Absolutely not. <laughs> it probably made less money than Annihilation, which didn't go out in cinemas. Annihilation made $40 million. <laughs> Lucy in the Sky made $325,000. So embarrassing. Yes. It wasn't even a pandemic last year. <laughs> Everything burns down. You see, the, there were these like crystalline trees that we haven't seen anywhere else outside the lighthouse, and they sort of catch fire and just sort of disintegrate. And uh, yeah, we return to that debriefing, and I guess Lomax has heard enough and just is like, yeah, Kane woke up as soon as the shimmer disappeared, and then he's allowed. She's allowed to go and and speak to Kane, and they embrace and have their shimmering eyes, obviously. And you know, she provides that explanation. Well, I feel Lomax is frustrated by her explanation of the creature. So was it an alien? And like that feels so not the point. And like her just being like, I don't really know what it was. I don't think it was destroying. I think it was making something new. And then yeah, they have that little embrace. Are you Kane? I don't think so. Are you Lena? No response. I do think that it is actual Lena that comes out, but she is so fundamentally changed by what went on in there that yeah. she 
hesitates. I, I don't think it's original Kane. I do think it's original Lena who's just... That's my take. Is, is, my, is, is completely There changed. may be some kind of effect on her DNA, but she is still her kind of thing. And, yeah. But then I, I do like it at the end where it does feel like you can put the metaphor for marriage where it's like, yeah. this is their reconciliation. Like They are both completely changed from the affair that they've had, mm-hmm. but they're coming to it now as different people who have had an experience and, and gone through grief or whatever, and different people who are still looking to forge a bond yeah. between the two of them. And uh, like, again, like, it's the most metaphorical yeah. meaning on the ending, because you also don't know, like, are they going to start a new shimmer in their exactly, house? Like, exactly, is, is yeah. Oscar Isaac going to explode into fungus? Is this start? an invasion? Like, is it out there and it's too late to contain it? Like, none of that is important or interesting. Like, it's about this core pair of characters, which is probably why maybe it isn't suitable for a miniseries, because as much as I like seeing Gina Rodriguez and Tessa Thompson and etc like and want to see the characters fleshed out they are just set dressing on the central story between Lena and Kane so just great really yeah uh, I, mean, I, I I definitely enjoyed it more for what it was on this thing as I said yeah. still feel at arm's length I finally watched Ex Machina this year and that did feel more more I was looking for this kind of thing but like I mean yeah. with I mean with I like Ex Machina plenty fine uh, just yeah, if you make me pick it's probably oh. this then dread than that but oh 100 percent. like i mean we we are about to hit a stretch of this mini series where i am choosing the second choice for an awful lot of the directors from this decade <laughs> which is entirely my own like preference for, for this kind of stuff so i i cannot blame anyone for liking the like the less consensus pick when it comes to people like this especially when it's alex garland and it's like i love sunshine i love dread i love it ex machina and i i really enjoy this like he is mm. someone who i am annoyed at myself for not getting to devs yet and i'm gonna move up my like list of things to watch an awful lot sooner the end pissed me off a bit but like the ride is is plenty fun it's kind of an amalgamation of everything he's done kind of thing which makes sense if you're getting more time to play with and he is a guy that has repeating ideas and repeating themes and repeating visual language i think I feel like he's trying to make the same thing every time and he's getting a little bit closer to his, his idea. I've, I've heard Devs is closer to Ex Machina in terms of like some of the ideas it's trying to, yeah. to get at. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I have one final piece of trivia. The VFX company that did The Bear worked on Paddington and they nicknamed the Scream Bear, the whatever you want to call it bear, Homerton, because that's a less nice station than Paddington is. <laughs> so, some London-based humour for everyone there to enjoy. So... We talked about the future of the podcast. Next week, another one of my picks. Another one that's a bit controversial. Bad times at the El Royale. I think this and Chef I had to fight for a lot. And you kept being like, what if you did Cabin in the Woods instead, Matt? What if you did Cabin in the Woods instead? And I was like, I really, really like Bad Times at the El Royale. And we will get into why next week. But it is handy that between when those debates started and now, we got our, like, 17th reason why Joss Whedon might actually be an enormous asshole. So I feel I can hide behind that. I am excited for a rewatch of this. I remember there are moments in this movie that I really enjoy. I just didn't Mm -hmm. feel it coalesced. Um, I'm hoping I get a similar reaction to like watching Annihilation, where I'm like, no, I'm doing this movie a bit of a disservice in terms of mm. what it's doing. So I'm excited to rewatch this one. It, I think it, it is certainly possible I'm going to be drawn to parts of it for reasons that are my own that will not click as much with you. But I do hope that yeah, you do enjoy it more on a second watch. It's got a heck of a cast. I'm excited, obviously, like, we're recording this in October. This episode isn't going to be out until November. I'm excited because I'm going to double bill it with Kevin in the Woods just to get the spoofies. Yes. 
I will watch Cabin in the Woods so that we can firmly decide if I made a mistake or not. But yeah, I I see no universe in which I'm going to wish I'd picked Cabin in the Woods over bad times. But we'll see what happens. That is next week. Um, I'm just anticipating the text from Matt going like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of anticipation, Benjamin, will there be movies? I mean, it's hard to say. There's a doppelganger in the room right now who is like making menacing advances towards me. Are you talking about your cat? No. (laughs) No, the cat's all asleep. Bye, everyone. Still, I didn't know.